Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. My name is Roger and I'm joined by my co-host Navaneeth. How you doing, Nav? Hey, Roger. I'm doing good. Fantastic. And today we're joined by our guest, Danny Bednar. How you doing, Danny? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. I'm very happy to have you, Danny. Uh, today, Danny, you're, you're going to be talking to us a little bit about your research on uh, geography and climate change and what you've been doing over the past several years here at Western. Do you want to just give us a quick uh, introduction to yourself? Yeah, I'm a uh, final year PhD student here at the Department of Geography at Western. Uh, I've been here quite a few years now. I did my master's in the same department. Um, and yeah, looking to finish up shortly and it's been a blast and I've enjoyed my time. And I uh, figured it was about time to get on GradCast. It's always a good time to get on GradCast. <laughs> and it's great to have you here, man. So, uh, Danny, your work uh, kind of centers around uh, uh, Canada's role in adapting to uh, climate change and um, different aspects of uh, uh, the challenges that present to the, the Canadian climate and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you like to speak a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm involved in a... a field of research called climate change adaptation Uh, and it's actually the entire other side of what people tend to think when we talk about climate change so when i mention climate change politics uh what what do you tend to think about i guess uh, how different borders throughout the world are dealing with uh, climate change you hear about the paris climate agreement and Mm -hmm. the u.s withdrawing and things like that absolutely Mm -hmm. so things like that um that all centers around reducing our carbon emissions uh, to stop or slow the effect of climate change. Um, but one of the things we're aware of now is that regardless of whether we're able to limit our emissions uh, that are causing climate change, there will be impacts. There's already a locked-in sequence of 50 to 100 years of, of emissions over the last 100 years. Sure that are going to lead to impacts around the world, and we're already seeing those. So with climate change comes impacts, otherwise it wouldn't be a problem. So everywhere in the world has different problems that will emerge from this. Uh, The U.S. Southwest and the the Central Corridor of North America is going to face more droughts, more heat waves, uh, drier summers as a whole, um, and cities are going to be impacted by more intense rainfall events and things like this. Um, And sea level rise, of course, is one of the big ones as well. So climate change adaptation is a process by which we as a society say, okay, we've caused this problem, and we are working to reduce our causing that, and that's the Paris Climate Accords and things like that, Mm -hmm. and driving, uh, you know, electrical cars. Sure. Um, But the other side of it is we should get ready because we know some things are going to happen. We can't predict with certainty what or where. Uh, but we have general ideas. So my research looks at how governments in Canada are preparing for those impacts. Um, so I, I'm looking at Manitoba and Ontario's provincial governments and cities within them, uh, Winnipeg and Toronto, and what risks might they face? So Winnipeg looking at increased days over plus 30. Um, right now you get four to five a summer on average. 
looking at potentially doubling or tripling that by 2050. And if they happen to be wow. all in a row, uh, that can pose problems, especially if there happens to be a power outage. Um, or a drought. Or a drought at the same time, or a f- northern forest fire at the same time, and sure. smoke in the city, so you have low Definitely. air quality. Um, and in, ci- in cities like Toronto, they're looking at things like uh, intense rainfalls, like what happened in 2013 in Toronto, uh, where the Metro Lynx was flooded out, and there's a famous image of it underwater. Um, so cities can prepare for these things, and that's what my research looks at, is how are they preparing for things? And what kind of challenges are they running into when they try to? So now you brought up earlier uh, how different regions of the world, different cities, perhaps coastal regions, are, are going to be more influenced or more impacted by uh, these uh, changes in the climate uh, coming mm-hmm. forward in the next couple of years. Uh, can you speak to why that might be the case, uh, their position throughout, uh, closer to the equator? Or? Yeah, so um, obviously the, the climate varies around the globe. Um, and the more vulnerable areas are, how should I put this, um, places, uh, one of the maxims that have been presented is dry places will get drier and wet places will get wetter. Now, it's not always true, but it's a decent uh, rule of thumb. Mm. Now, why I say uh, some places will be more impacted than others, you can imagine Uh, If a very poor city is hit by a hurricane versus a very rich city hit by the same hurricane, the impact is actually different. Uh, And that's what we mean when we talk about there being different levels of vulnerability to climate change. So a drought in a place that has ample agricultural production on average uh, may have food stocks, may have the ability to import food from elsewhere. Uh, a drought in an area that is already facing food precarity uh, is going to be significantly more severe. So on the global scale, not talking about Canada, uh, we know that the developing countries are going to face the most difficult challenges from climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the unfortunate reality is that they didn't really cause the problem, but they will likely face the brunt of the problem mm-hmm. because they don't have what we call the adaptive capacity to deal with increased drought, increased temperatures. In the same capacity that more developed countries do. Absolutely, yeah. That's absolutely fascinating. So is that how your research on politics and climate change come in, as in how they're going to adapt to these new changes? Yeah, yeah. so I look uh, only at the case of Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have lots of colleagues looking at adaptation in the developing world. And it may be something I'm moving on to uh, in a postdoc. But currently, my project looks at, uh, you know, the subgenre of adaptation is adaptation in developed countries, which you don't want to get comparative, but it's a much different issue. Um, so thankfully, the likelihood of lives lost and things like this is much lower uh, than in the developing world. Uh, but there are still impacts, um, and unfortunately, there can still be losses as a result. Um, in 2005, European heat waves, uh, Paris lost thousands of individuals as a result of heat exhaustion and heat-related illness. Um, highly developed city. Wow. Um, and, of course, we're seeing that flooding even in major cities like Houston, whether they're accompanied mm. by, of course, a, a damaging right. hurricane. Um can cause lives to be lost. 
Um, and then less importantly, massive infrastructure damage. So New Orleans mm. is still rebuilding from uh, Hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. um, the city of Toronto still has a bill for the 2013 flooding. Uh, the city of Winnipeg still has a massive bill for the 2011 flooding. Um, so we know these impacts, which some are directly linked to climate change. Some it's more difficult to say that hurricane is climate change or that drought is climate change. Sure. But regardless, the impacts that are consistent with climate change are at the very least very expensive and governments right. who provide services need to cover that. So the whole purpose of my research is governments should do that ahead of time because we know it's cheaper to prepare for a disaster than mm, to react right. to one. Mm. Plus you don't lose lives, which is the most important. Um, yes. So would you use the same strategy uh, uh, for a, for a developing country? Mm. Like, are there some, are there some universal strategies that you would, that, that, yeah. that are out so, there? So one of the problems with adaptation is there is not really a, an accepted process. Um, one of the things I've been talking about lately is the stages of adaptation. So what if your city, what you could start with is identify what will be the impacts of climate change on your city. And typically a way of doing that is saying, what will the city of Toronto's climate be in 2050? Okay, okay. Well, we'll have 30 plus 30 days on average per summer. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll have two to three significant l thunderstorms per summer. Um, and hopefully they're spaced out. Um, this is what we can project. Now, will it happen for sure? Of course not. Um, but it's possible. And how much of an increase uh, percentage-wise or, or any value is this from current uh, weather forecasts? Or um, so with the hot days, I, I gave an example there where right now there's anywhere from five to 10 per summer in a city like Winnipeg or Toronto, and they're looking at doubling or tripling that. Drastically, yes. Um, extreme rainfall, the projections vary. Um, you know, I'd have to be careful here, but um, usually we're looking at extreme rainfall events. So you can also look at total amount of rain that a city's going to get in okay. a summer, but that's inherently tricky to project um but so typically toronto gets one to two massive thunderstorms of a particular amount of rain per summer mm -hmm. um, and by 2050 there could be two to four of those or four to five of those per summer now if they go as badly as the 2013 one went with so much rain in such a short period each one of those is a four to five billion dollar event um, so then you're having cities constantly falling behind the eight ball, so to speak, of response. So, and then in terms of strategies, uh, you move along the process of, okay, what will our climate look like? What's vulnerable? So is our sewer system outdated? You know, can we handle 10 inches of rain in two hours? And then the engineers and the very competent people in, <laughs> in major American and Canadian cities will say, our sewers can handle this much rain in this many hours. And if the climatologists are telling us we'll probably get that once a month, then we have a decision to make. Do we invest in bigger sewers or do we take the risk? Mm. 
That, that is just incredible. And, and how does your research address some of the uh, adaptations that Canada is trying to implement uh, right now? Yeah, so, you know, we've seen adaptation taking place. The City of Toronto has been incredibly active, uh, particularly on heat alert systems um, for their, um, they had a, uh, an official term for individuals with precarious housing and individuals with uh, vulnerable health needs and things like this. Okay. Um, heat like, can be like senior citizens, and senior citizens, uh, individuals with uh, um, chronic illness, and then individuals okay. with who we would so-called air quotes call homeless and things like this, mm-hmm. uh, who have limited access to resources. Mm-hmm. Um, Ten days of plus thirty can be significantly damaging to their lives. Um, you know, That's if right. they are working precariously, mm-hmm. but they're sweating a ton every day and, and maybe heat exhausted and, and they're trying to find precarious work or whatever, um, there's all sorts of problems around that. And of course, the health potential as well. So the city of Toronto has begun establishing uh, cooling centers for people who don't have homes. Uh, they started establishing plans for seniors' homes and, and schools for what to do in the, in the event of heat waves and, and training local health officials in heat exhaustion programs and things like this, um, as well as making the citizens aware um, through a number of advertisements and things like that about how to be heat safe. Um, and in urban centers, that's going to be one of the, the bigger issues moving forward, I would say. And what are some of the best ways to be heat safe in, in these kinds of times? Yeah, so the City of Toronto then is looking at um, largely the way that employers are treating, you know, making sure that outdoor workers are provided breaks, water, shade, uh, making sure that individuals, as you mentioned, elderly citizens, individuals with chronic health issues, uh, remember to, you know, or are aware that they should check the weather before they go for a long walk or something like this or or bring someone with them. Um, You know, and then even everyone, of course... Um, uh, suntan, not suntan lotion. Sunscreen. Sunscreen. Mm-hmm. There we go. Um, and hats. Sunscreen. Yeah, sunscreen and hats and umbrellas and and shade. And if you have yeah. children, you know, you know, letting them run around and play, obviously mm-hmm. great. We all love that as kids. But y- as a kid, you probably don't realize you're slowly getting heat stroke or you're getting a massive burn. Uh, right. You know, mm-hmm. so educating parents that in the summertime get that lotion on you know um and so it's uh, you know it's things people already know but making them more prevalent i guess many many different avenues going towards the Mm -hmm. education and Mm -hmm. all these okay Okay, danny um i'm gonna shift gears now yeah and we're gonna we want to get to know you more yeah at this point we know about your research but so you said you study geography yep so could you mm, as a as a high school student, I didn't take much geography, or mm, I should that. have paid attention, I guess. I but barely, yeah. Like that was my last avenue of geography. So now, tell me, what is geography? Yeah, no, that's not uncommon. Uh, <laughs> my high school. You wanted to know about me. My high school mm. career is pitiful. Um, I I barely got <laughs> out of there, and I got into the University of Winnipeg by the grace of a program that allowed uh, students from low income housing with terrible grades to get into university. So that's the only reason I'm here, um, not because I did well in high school. But had I went to high school and attended geography class, or had I attended classes, um, yeah, I would have been coloring maps, that's uh, right. learning where countries were, um, 
And those are important things at the high school level. But and I even remember learning about rocks in geography. Yeah. And then I come across this field called geology, which that's is right. the study of rocks. So right. now I'm wondering, so what is geography? So that's the other burden of uh, geographers is um, family members and, and the public would typically confuse us for geology geologists which many of my closest friends are geologists ironically um (laughs) but so geology is the scientific study of rocks and rock forms and our planet is made of rocks so there's obviously lots to study there um geography is one of those split disciplines kind of like psychology or anthropology that has half of it is social science and i can explain that half because that's where i am and half of it is physical science natural science so mm-hmm. we have physical geographers, what we call them, and they study how rivers form and what causes rivers to have high water quality and low water quality. Okay. And they overlap a lot with geologists and, and other That's right. natural it scientists. I can imagine a lot of field work. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and just like in anthropology, where there's physical anthropology that studies primate evolution and things like that, and then there's cultural anthropology that studies how societies evolve over time. Uh, there's a human side to human to geography, human geography, and that's where I am. Um, and yeah, I mean, every family gathering, when I say I'm getting a PhD in geography, I have to explain what that is. Um, so, you know, a quick analogy I've developed f- because I, I've dealt with this a lot is everyone kind of has an understanding of what history is. Mm, that's Hist- right. History is the study of humans and time. So humans and the temporal factor. Well, geography is kind of a sibling to that. It's the study of humans in space, the spatial factor. Okay. So how do humans interact with different locations, spaces, mm-hmm. places? Um, and as I was talking about before we went to air, uh, your home or your house to you is it's your home. You have a right. attachment to it. It means something to you. It has an identity you. to me. Exactly. Right. But to me, it's just a house. That's right. It's just a, a space. Hmm. Now, geography, lingo, we would say, to me, it's a space, just a physical space. And to you, it's a place. It's your home. Okay. And and there's been what we call a placemaking process okay. to you. You've made that house It a means home. something. Yeah. There's meaning attached to it. Yeah. So just, just extending on the analogy with history, mm-hmm. history is a lot about the narratives yep. that we say in relation to time. Absolutely. So... So would you say that there are narratives about spaces, about places? Yeah, well? absolutely. So um, a common one that geographers deal with when they study cities is what is the downtown of a city for? Okay. And to some people, they want a downtown to be a place where you walk around, you pop in on a cafe, you get a coffee, there's mm-hmm. sidewalks, it's vibrant. And to other places, it's a place you drive through. And you want four-lane highways, and you want quick access in and out, and lots of parking lots. Mm-hmm. But okay. those are n- you can't really have both of them. That's right. So then you have these narratives about what is downtown or what is a downtown for. Hmm. Um, and then in geography lingo, we have contested spaces. So people will argue about how should we develop our downtown? Should we have lots of parking lots, or should we have lots of storefronts and sidewalks? Um, and each serves a different interest and a different purpose. And that's really what geography is all about, is studying how humans interact with different spaces and the way we essentially argue about what are they. That forest is for lumber, mm. or that forest is an incredibly beautiful location for camping or hiking. 
You can't okay. be both, or in some instances, I guess you can use part of it for each. That's right. But there needs there's a discussion there. Yeah, uh, that's yeah geography in a nutshell, I suppose. So I guess the meaning that's ascribed to these different places, it it, it might dip and it can does differ between mm-hmm. the people who are ascribing the meaning. Absolutely, um, and that's been the history of of geography. Um, uh, map making was the first way of making a place. Uh, again, as I was telling you guys earlier, you know. The classic Barbie monsters written on the ocean. That was a way of, of making the ocean. It is terrifying, I'm sure, to be out in the ocean back in the 17th century on a ship. Mm-hmm. And to convey that on a map, well, you draw a little dragon in the ocean, right? And that's a placemaking <laughs> process. Whereas if you draw, you know, Palm Tree Island in the sunrise, you go, oh, the ocean looks quite beautiful. You know, so the, the cartographers were purposely making places the way they had experienced them. And we know this now when we look back at historical geography. Um, you know, maps in the early era of automotive industries focused on roads. I was saying this earlier. Where are roads is essentially what maps were for for a big period of the 20th century. Well, that's one use of a map, but you could also have a map that tells you where sidewalks are. And those are much less common. They're becoming more common now because people ride their bikes. Google Earth. Exactly. They want, <laughs> they want um, bike paths. But, yeah, you know, what you decide to map and what you, what you can tell stories with maps, too. And that's another massive component of geography. And as you were speaking about earlier, the, the map-making process would influence uh, local uh, events and would influence mm-hmm. people's uh, views on different areas in the world just based on what those maps look like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and so then the maps themselves become a way of storytelling, become yeah. a way of narratives. Absolutely. Um, and and we see this, you know, incredibly with colonial area maps, mm-hmm. as I was saying earlier. Um, the colonial powers would try to indicate that these territories they were taking over were empty, barren lands, maybe with quote-unquote savages inhabiting them. So they were unimportant people and they had lots of resources that we need for our mighty colony. And this is a lot of map making of the period would reflect that. And you could see drawings in, as part of the maps that would do so. Absolutely fascinating. We just have a few minutes left and I yeah. really, really want to touch on another really, really interesting aspect of your research. I understand you've done some work to do with the 50th anniversary of the Outer Space Treaty. Yeah. And I, I'm really uh, curious about what that entails, what the Outer Space Treaty is, and how your research applies to it. Yeah, we have a treaty for outer space, uh, and it's turning 50. And as we've <laughs> just been talking about, uh, all places are contested, and outer space is really no different. <laughs> and in the 1960s, uh, after the Soviets and the Americans had gone over some brilliant ideas to set off nukes in orbit, Uh, they realized it was a bad idea because it would damage satellites and the electromagnetic pulse produced by a a nuclear explosion would essentially wipe out every satellite in orbit. Wow. So they sat down and, among other reasons, created this document that said outer space was for peaceful purposes, for exploration. Um, But as it turns 50, uh, those ideas of peace and cooperation in outer space are starting to really become challenged. you know, there's always been this idea that you can't own property in space as part of that peaceful cooperation, but that's being challenged now by people who want to go to the moon and mine for resources or to start a colony on Mars. <laughs> and all of these challenge what those places are for. 
So in our micro lesson on geography here, you can see that moving into the 21st century, even outer space is becoming a contested place. You know, to me, I'll play my cards. Uh, the moon is a very important laboratory, as is Mars, for understanding our solar system and perhaps the origins of life, especially Mars, potentially. Uh, to me, it's not really somewhere we send billionaires to vacation. <laughs> but there are contested values of what is Mars for. Um, so we'll see how that plays out over the next decades. Um, mm. It's not as important as climate change, I guess. But uh, outer space has a lot of interesting components in our daily lives. I can tell you, you've all interacted with outer space today. Um, if you really? used your phone, uh, enough. well, you would have passively interacted with your gps probably uh if you check the weather you definitely did mm -hmm. um and i doubt you use satellite-based phone or internet but uh if you did then that would be a direct link to outer space but uh yeah if you check the weather or use gps at all you interact with outer space we're um, all pretty much astronauts now yeah pretty much yeah <laughs> you've you've been there so um even those orbits around earth where all those important satellites are that tell you where your phone is and, and tell you what the weather or help mm -hmm. tell you what the weather is with incredible accuracy um, those places are up for grabs as well so to speak uh, right now those spaces are largely dominated by the powers that existed the united states soviet union china uh, in in the later half of the 20th century but now developing countries who are building satellites and they need room you need space for them and surprisingly there's only so much space around our planet to put satellites. Um, so right, space debris. That's yes, that's a whole other issue I could come back and talk about. I've <laughs> talked about that as well. We'd absolutely love for you yeah. to come back. You said that you're nearly finished your studies here at Western. You're almost uh, yeah. ready for your postdoc. Do you have any interests uh, for what's next uh, for you? Combined the two, uh, space and climate change. So all week I've been writing a grant proposal to look at how space-based technologies, these satellites, are helping us prepare for climate change. So countries are getting uh, daily passes over their infrastructure with satellite imagery to identify vulnerability mm. to flooding um, and other components of space-based data, as we call it, to help us prepare for climate change. So hopefully my future project uh, will look at the two of them and, and how satellites can help us prepare for the impacts of climate change by better managing our resources and infrastructure. I can't okay. wait uh, for the future of your research and what, what you have to tell us next time you come on the show. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Uh, Danny, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, my name's Roger, and I'm, I've been joined by Navaneeth. Thanks, Roger. This has been GradCast. Uh, you can catch us at 6 p.m. Uh, every Tuesday on CHRW. You can check us out at uh, gradcast.ca or send us an email at gradcastradio at gmail.com if you'd like to get involved with GradCast, if you'd like to be a, a guest yourself on the show. Uh, we are uh, sponsored by the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. And uh, thank you very much for listening. Have a wonderful week. Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone or the time.